Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our fifth year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is our wonderful interview segment, and as always, it, it's it's a blessing because you just never know what kind of schedule you're going to fall into, uh, what kind of person you're going to really uh, get involved with, or even if they're going to, you know, pay through on the commitment or not. So you, you have to always wonder, and, and whenever you do, to me, it's it, it's a blessing because the show, as much as it's about standalone episodes, it's really also about the interaction. You know of the artists, so I'm very happy to to be here, uh, along with a, a wonderful guest here, uh, uh, Rosie Ocola. Hopefully that is the mm-hmm. correct way of saying it. Uh, she's a poet, an editor, and uh, a queer guido, which I didn't realize in, until uh, until recently. <laughs> uh, and she investigates um, how reality TV functions and auto fiction, and the interaction between uh, pop culture and poetics. She graduated from. Uh, a Naropa University with an MFL in creative writing. Um, her book is uh, published in uh, 2019, uh, Referential Body from Ghost City Press. Kind of like that title, actually. Rosie, thank, thank you. you very much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Basically, talking about my writing is my favorite thing. So, well, any that, chance I get. That, that is great. I have a, a weird uh, aside here. This has happened happened before, but I had done uh, an editing assignment. I do them every so often, especially if it's a particular uh, different, uh, you know, project. And, and in this particular one is a compilation of uh, cat stories, um, and uh, from uh, um, I guess you could say a pet story on the internet basis. They wanted to do some pet stories, and uh, Rosie had uh, pr- produced a wonderful uh, cat stories and. I really liked all the cat stories because, you know, I like cats. But I, I found her more than the other writers to be not just a pedestrian cat lover, but also, you know, a, a committed writer. I thought she was much more literary. So I invited her on the show. You just never know what's going to happen with that. And, you know, it worked out. So it was just great. I never had to really uh, do something like that before. But, you know, it, it, wherever you're really going to take somebody – as long as it, you know, it's on the up and up, and as long as it's going to be creative, then then I'm happy to do so. So that's our little story there. Yeah, and I was like super excited when you offered me the spot on your podcast because that had never happened to me before with any sort of freelance gig either. Um, I took this cat story gig because I was working retail at the time, and I was just kind of looking for a way to make like a quick extra. 30 bucks because my shifts had been cut and I saw this posting asking for people to write stories about their cats. Um, and I was like, okay, I can totally do that. I have two cats. I'm obsessed with them. Um, so I started emailing the editor and I was like, have you ever read Afterglow by Eileen Miles, which is this memoir about how Miles' writing life is impacted by their relationship with their dog, 
who was actually named Rosie. So it was like this whole thing when I read that book. But I was like, if you want, I could do the kitty version of Afterglow because like my cats are totally part of my art practice at this point. Um, Franny, my little gray cat, has had multiple poems written about her. Um, one of them is going to be an, an anthology um, this June, which is pretty cool. She's going to be famous. And then um, both Franny and my cat Spaghetti get, I don't know if you know this, but they make you, for that anthology with that you found me on, they make you send in an author photo of you and your cat. So we're all going to be in there. <laughs> yeah. So everyone's getting their moment on in the sun. And I just kind of started thinking about like the relationship between cats and art throughout history and like this idea that like you know they have medieval manuscripts with paw prints on them <laughs> from like the cats there were cats in the monastery and like these monks would be writing these beautiful like illuminated manuscripts one of a kind like that's the only one and then there's still like a paw print smudge that someone found like thousands of years later yeah, they they really are yeah. unique animals, and um, I remember the comic The Far Side, where um, once the pharaoh would die, the cats would actually uh, leave the house in a suitcase because they knew that oh. they knew that the moment the pharaoh had died, all of the animals and cats would be, have to be mummified as well for the afterlife. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they were they were uh, unique and and uh, almost spiritual animals in, in ancient Egypt. So they've they always had something about them, and, and I I I, yeah. I, I love the cats. I didn't know anything about the photo thing mainly because, you know, I was the editor, so they don't they can care less about whether you cared about cats or not as long as you can edit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure, I've gotten a couple of random editing gigs through that website as well, um, just for like a bunch of random like romance novels and stuff. So I know about what it's like to deal with that side of things but yeah it was actually a really cool project um and it was one of the first times that I was able to like be in an anthology where my writing was directly connected to my actual name because the majority of freelance projects that I get are um, ghostwriting gigs which means that like I though I do the majority of the writing it's not connected to me in any way, shape, or form. I have to sign a bunch of NDAs. Yeah. Um, I, I call it my Batman job because <laughs> it's like no one really knows that I'm doing it. Unless, like, I have friends who read romance novels and they always joke, like, one day I'm going to find one of your books and I'm going to know it's you. Like, and it's it's their mission because I, I can't tell them. And also, I don't really want them to know <laughs> that that's how I spend my time. Um. But yeah, it was cool to be like acknowledged as a writer. And then also I was very tickled when you said that my style was literary because usually I write about like um, sort of the trashier aspects of popular culture, like reality TV or like pop music. Like my first poetry book has a lot of poems that are about like karaoke and like growing up as a queer person and it's sort of a it's more of a buildings roman than my other work but yeah it was cool for someone to think that I was actually like you know a literary writer like no one had ever called me that before yeah well I I, I really liked it and uh, I was just hoping that you know you would want to be a, a guest mainly because um, 
I don't know. I, I don't really get a chance to share about cats a lot. I mean, at all. I mean, I never, oh. I've never even talked about cats on the on the show. Uh, mainly, uh, I think because most people, when they uh, engage in any kind of uh, literary endeavor, they don't really focus a lot on their animals. I mean, unless they're about animal yeah. rights or something, they don't really focus in in the same way. It's almost like a, it's, you know, it's a personal part of us or a secret part of us or just something that's, you know, more sacred than than writing. So they, you know, they don't really in, deal with it, and that's fine with me. It's just nice to be able yeah. to talk about that once in a while, and I, I just I really enjoyed the the story because many a times I found that a lot of the writing in the book, which is great on a commercial basis for the reader. It was very pedestrian, so you know it's, yeah. it wasn't anything that would be up to snuff on, on you know on a literary or small press publication. But you know it's fine for the book, so it was great to be able to to, to be able to to I think see both that you know this is a real potential here in terms of the writing, but also you know it's nice to have a a, a decent cat story as well. Oh, for sure, I. Well, I love, I actually love writing about all sorts of animals. There's, um, I don't know if you know this book, it's called All of These Wonders, and it's this book of essays about just, like, different animals and aspects of the natural world. And then Mary Oliver also has this really cool collection of poetry about her dog that's just called Dog Poems, and it's, like, a little 50-page poetry book about how her relationship with her dog has impacted her just like the way she sees the world and like her writing. And it's still like, it's still Mary Oliver. It's still great writing. Um, and I think with poetry, especially people kind of are a little, um, they think that when you write a love poem, it has to be for like a committed romantic partner. You know, they don't see that you can write love poems. I write love poems all the time about my pets and my friends and just, like, aspects of my life that make it better um, outside of a romantic context, just almost as, like, an exercise in mindfulness and gratitude, you know? Oh, yeah, no, no doubt about it. Um, I think sometimes our uh, more of our Western viewpoint, you know, is that if we don't have the stereotypical you know, focal point on, you know, a romantic relationship or an architectural site or a historical event, and it's no longer worth uh, writing about. But, I mean, the Japanese just write about food, <laughs> you know. Oh, my God. Yeah, in, in, a yeah. High, in, in a haiku. So it's like, you know, I mean, what's wrong with that? It's a lot better than you know, then, then violence and, and, and malice <laughs> right about your dinner. I mean, yeah. nothing wrong yeah, with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like, I've found that some of my poems that are about non-traditional subjects, like my cats or a night out with my friends or something like that, are the ones that I return to and am most grateful for because they act as this sort of time capsule for the moment that I was in when I wrote it. Like, when I was in grad school... Um, we every summer we would have to turn in like the big thing was that we had to get our 40 page portfolio in by the end of July and I got my cats as kittens like two weeks before that deadline so they were just they were so little I could hold each of 
each of them in like my hand. Like I could be just handful of kittens. It was a really good time in my life um, for that reason alone. But I was really struggling to hit my page count um, just because like 40 pages of writing is a lot, even if you're used to it and you're in school for it. And I was like, oh my God, what do I write about? And then, you know, my cats would just be like scampering around or like they would like sit on my keyboard. And I was like, I, sh I should just go ahead and write a cat poem. Like I should write, like we already have, my roommate and I already had like 70 weird little jokes about them and their past lives. Like um, one of my cats is named Spaghetti. So we joke that he's an Italian cowboy because his full name is Spaghetti Western, like the the movie genre. Um, so I wrote this little like one-off poem about Spaghetti being an Italian cowboy and how Franny is basically, um, she's definitely a, a cat that's had past lives. Like she is very like knowing and also really likes books and books op book objects. Like she will try and eat my books. Um, she's obsessed with paper for some reason. So we joke that she's the departed spirit of like a confessional poet from the seventies, like Anne Sexton or something. <laughs> um, so I just wrote like this little joke poem about how I have these little weirdo cats and one of them's a cowboy and one of them's the ghost of Anne Sexton and people loved it and like I still love it because it takes me back to those days when they were just like teeny tiny kittens and I was like so frantic and it just like yeah so yeah I really truly believe that you can write a poem about anything that you want um, and I encourage people to actually write about what they want instead of just going for like a a, B, A, rhyme scheme, roses are red, violets are blue kind of thing. Because, um, yeah, poetry is expansive, and I don't think people know that. I think, in a way, it's, as a literary form, it's been pigeonheld by the idea that it has to be about romance, when really some of my favorite poems and poetry collections that I have read um, are just sort of these, like, slice-of-life poems, which is something that I think... Um, Frank O'Hara did really well because he would just be like, all right, I'm on my lunch break, line break. I'm walk I'm walking down 42nd Street, line break. Like that kind of quotidian um, approach to poetry, I think, is really thrilling and in some ways infinitely more interesting than like your eyes are like lakes, line break, you know? <laughs> That is, yeah. that is wonderful. Now, I think just as much as people can be, uh, I, I feel uh, passionate or even individualistic about their writing, sometimes uh, their schooling can also be unique, too. I, I'm one of the few people that that uh, has gotten to to, uh, to live and, and to go to school in, 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 uh, in Germany. And, um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I, because I was in the Air Force, so I went to the University of Maryland there on, on the campus there. So. That's awesome! Wow, I didn't even know that was an option with the Air Force. That's so cool. Yeah, it's a, on the major bases. You just simply go to school, and they they import all the teachers in, and they they spend the a, a year, I, I guess, uh, for each each year. You know, on on the base, and they get to travel and, and get paid by the university, and they they teach in the classroom. So it kind of works out for for us and 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 for them. And um, 
I, I, I really enjoyed that uh, that experience because it's part of the reason why I went into the Air Force was to travel and, and of course, to go to school. And um, I remember that you had, uh, you had mentioned uh, that you had a type of a Buddhist <laughs> experience with Naropa. Yeah. So what, what was that all about? Because uh, I, I really can't so really consider that as much as... My- yeah, my I first of all, shout out to Naropa University Low Res program. Um, if you are a writer and you want to get your MFA, but you're like, I can't afford to move out to somewhere, look into low residency programs because what they do is they give you the bulk of your coursework online. And then hypothetically, this hypothetical is going to be important. Um, you can go to residencies on campus in the fall, spring, and summer, and sort of do some in-person coursework and get to know the faculty. So I did the low-res program at Naropa in um, the fall of 2020, which means that I did seven semesters of internet Buddhist grad school. Um, I finally got to go on campus last June. It was literally my last class before I graduated. Like the diploma was about to be printed and I got to fly down to Boulder um, for a week and actually meet everyone whose little like square faces that I'd been seeing on my Zoom camera for the past two years. And it was so wild because like I got to meet all of my classmates and like so many of them were so much taller than I anticipated. And just like things like that. But yeah, Naropa is a really wonderful school for any sort of like experimental poetics. Um, I'm infinitely grateful for them because A, I think I would have, I would have went bananas if I was just trapped in my house with no outside stimuli um, except for work during the pandemic. And also because they really encourage you to find out what you like and what your specific approach to poetics is. Um, They do a lot of work with Buddhist principles of like mindfulness and like beginner's mind. And they have a like a therapy program, like a wilderness therapy program that people can get their masters in. Um, They do a lot of like somatic psychology, like they're it's a it's super interesting because it started out as well, the writing school started out. um, It was founded by the poet Allen Ginsberg, who wrote Howl and then Anne Waldman, who is still the chair to this day. Um, She's amazing. She just put a book out like two weeks ago. She is the most organized and concise poet that I've ever met but she's also just like brilliant and she can just rattle off these Buddhist concepts like it's nothing like it's so thoroughly ingrained in her brain she is so smart and also stylish she wears like a bunch of really cool silk scarves like that's her thing like you'll see her walking around campus and like these magnificent blazers and scarves um so yeah it's a really cool place and it's also it's on a mountain like when I went to campus for the first time I could actually like see the mountains in the distance and like yeah they have all these like sycamore trees and like they have a little like cafe that serves like 
really delicious like vegan food it's it's a poet's dream honestly when I was there for um my classes for the week I was like this doesn't even feel like school this feels like vacation um but it's also it's intense because like these residencies basically what they do is they try to pack like three credits worth of coursework into like three or four days so you're in um lectures and panels and workshops like all day um which means that when I was on like in zoom school I would be on zoom like from 11 a.m to like 7 p.m for these weekends at a time and it was so much work to a try and process the information but also to focus long enough because like I don't know if you get this thing but like when I'm on zoom for once hour three hits I really start to forget that I'm like taking in information or even that like I have a body like it's really hard to (laughs) remind yourself to not like hunch like I just remember being in my apartment that's for the first summer that I was supposed to go to neuro, but we ended up having to do it on Zoom. And I was so sad because all year long, I was just ready to go. I was like, I'm going to meet all of my friends. I'm going to like, this is going to be my cute little reward for like surviving like pandemic season one, you know, because I was working at a bookstore at the time, like I was still working with the public and it was really atrocious. So I was like, I have been through the ringer. I deserve to go see a mountain, you know? Hmm. Um, And then they said it was going to be on Zoom. And I was like, are you kidding me? Because the summer classes are three weeks. So that was three weeks of Zoom school. But I really have to hand it to Naropa and the faculty from Summer 21 because they were so interesting and they adapted the coursework so well. Like I did this class about ritual poetics and the teacher made us make our own kind of ritual kits to prompt our practice just with stuff that we had around our house you know like they adapted it so that we could do it from our specific environments but still be engaged and still be learning um and they put all of the panels and readings on zoom have been recorded and are probably floating around online somewhere and a lot of the poets from the readings are um significantly older so they didn't really know how to work zoom (laughs) so like shout out to everyone at naropa for pulling that off because like it it feels impossible when you're on like hour six of a zoom lecture to even be engaged so to ha- be having these moments where I was still learning but also like interested in what was happening even though I was just sitting in my apartment was super interesting and I think it also sort of gave me the stamina that I need now to do freelance stuff full-time because like if you sit me down in front of a computer and give me a stack of stuff to edit like I will I'll focus I'm not gonna like flounce around my apartment like maybe I'll get up and like grab a snack or something but it really taught me how to sort of like hyper focus on my writing even if I'm not in the most ideal environment um 
but yeah, Naropa is so wonderful. I'm probably going to try and go back there this summer just to say hi to some friends and be in um, Boulder for a bit because it's beautiful out there. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's completely gorgeous. Um, like the mountains, I didn't know that they like blended into the skyline. I thought they were like separate entities. Like I'd never <laughs> seen a mountain before until I went out there. Um, and everyone is just so kind and supportive and just like, yeah, it's, it was just a really nice antidote to what I feel is the traditional NFA model, which can be very competitive. Like it's cool to see that I'm like still in touch with my classmates instead of all of us being like at each other's throats at workshop, you know, <laughs> like it's been really wonderful to be able to maintain these friendships and watch each other grow even after we've graduated. So yeah, if you like mindfulness and writing and or um, you either want to take a week to hang out in Boulder or you want to get the, an actual NFA, you should check out Naropa. Um, their summer project, their summer writing program does have options for non-credited students, which was another really cool thing. Um, because when I was out there, there were a couple people in my class who they literally every year they just save up and then they go to Naropa for a week. Like that's part of their summer and they've been doing it for like five or six years. So it's really cool to see that kind of community and also just like meet people from like all over the world. Like I had a woman in my class who was like a lawyer in Italy and she goes to Naropa every year because like her mom is friends with Ann Waldman and that's how she found out about the school just like wild little connections about like that um but yeah they're the best honestly I I know that grad school is not for everyone but I definitely think that it was right for me um and yeah all right I really I really appreciate that I think uh many times we I feel especially on creative people in this day and age that we focus so much on the negative aspects of technology. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't because, you know, we have to take into account all that's happening, you know, everything from cyberbullying onward. But also we need to be able to, I feel, uh, feel blessed and, and also feel in many ways encouraged that, the technology can assist, you know, in our artistic endeavors. I, uh, I spent, uh, um, a good of six months, uh, on a, um, a certificate in grant writing and it was completely online. And that's the first time I've ever had any online experience because, you know, I traditionally went to, to college in, in Germany, but nevertheless was in a classroom yeah. and, um, just a different classroom because, you know, uh, you got to put your gun rack up and then after that you do the classroom and then you put your gun again. So it's, yeah, a, it's a little different, but sure. it's still, a, you know, a, a traditional classroom. So there's much to be uh, to be spoken about regarding, you know, Zoom and, and online and even itself and its podcast where not even 30, 40 years ago, you know, you wouldn't be able to have any kind of show out of this at all. Unless you had your own radio, yeah. unless you had your own radio station, and even if you did, it didn't necessarily mean that, you know, someone was going to listen to you. So, um, I think in many ways, uh, we we I feel we're, we're blessed that we're in the age that we could do a lot of these things. It's just a question of, you know, whether people are willing to do them or not. I'm I'm always surprised that, 
um, your average writer is still expecting, you know, the knock on the door or the letter in the mail, you know, about a book versus pursuing that book and that agent and that publisher and whatever that has to be done. And it's just that you have to do more work now. You have to wear more hats, so to speak. But in many, oh, in many, for sure. Yeah, in many ways, though, yeah. it's still it's still liberating that you can do what you want, and it's just a question of how much of a work ethic you're willing to to put into it. Yeah, like I have only been freelancing full time since January um, because I got let go of my day job thanks to budget cuts. That was really fun. Um, that was me and my roommate both worked at the same place. Um, and they cut us both at the same time on Zoom. Oh, like boy. we were in a little, we had this little like Zoom staff meeting. Um, at least we thought it was going to be a staff meeting. And then we showed up in the little Zoom room and it was just our bosses looking very grave. Um, and it was like a really terrible reverse surprise party because <laughs> like neither of us saw it this coming. Um so we both kind of freaked out and I was like, okay, what can I do? Like I, <clears throat> cause I knew like, I didn't want to go back to retail. Um, I had worked retail all throughout the pandemic and it was terrible. Um, anyone that you know, who has had to work directly with the public from like April of 2020 through like that fall, like mask mandate fall, mask mandate winter, like pre-vaccines, that was like, I felt like every time I went to work, I was just being dipped in a vat of germs and I was just like powerless to stop it. Um, so yeah, I knew I didn't want to work retail again, but I had all these little side projects like my kitty essay and I started ghostwriting again. So I was like, let me just see if I can figure this out. And yeah, it just, it takes a lot of work, but it feels better to me than like having just like, like even the ability to make my own schedule and fit in something like this is so liberating. And like, that's worth having to sit at my desk for a few hours and like type up some romance novels, you know, like, Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely all for that and and more because I think in a strange way the pandemic allowed us to to see uh, certain certain aspects of of our social culture that really wasn't all that positive. I mean, quite frankly, you know, you're doing two hours of commuting every day in a gas vehicle. Yeah. All the, the, the traffic, the expense and everything else, like just to find out, you know, it's an office with half the people back, back stabbing you and politically speaking about you. You know, what was supposed to be so interesting and romantic and modern about that? When you could simply yeah. have done this job in your house where you could, you know, play with your cat and have a snack and you know, take a, a walk outside yeah. and, you know, breathe for a moment and, and not have to worry about all that stuff and, and boil down the essentials to the job you had at hand versus all the social interactions. I, I always found, to me, it's some weird thing about that um, we should we sh we don't really have enough social interactions, you know, and, and therefore the social media is not real legitimate. 
To me, I, I always felt yeah. that we've had too much social actions, and most of it wasn't very positive. You're going into a smelly subway or a smelly bus, or you're yeah. dealing with traffic and commuting. You're dealing with all kinds of office weird stuff, and you, you can't even have a normal atmosphere over there. I can't tell you how many times before I, I simply divulged myself of all of this, where I worked in an office where I couldn't even get a, a female who's involved in, in management sympathetic to my cause of my kid being sick and having to take a few hours off because they're like, well, we, we never really did that back in our day. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it turns out you got to do the same yeah. thing. Like, really? What, what, what the hell is that supposed to be all about? All the social, oh, all, sure. yeah, all the social stuff in the end didn't mean anything if it's just going to be negative and, and nasty. What was the point then? So I always felt in many ways that the so-called social lives of the last five decades were, were, were to me a, a, a lot more, a lot more negative and even a lot more, um, I guess you can say, contrived, and and that in many ways, uh, at least the social media. Uh, w was honest in a certain aspect, and, and even in in freelance or even in uh, in online work and you know uh, Zoom work and, and etc. Uh, you showing up because this is the job you want to you want to do, and you, you're not looking to you know pussyfoot around so to speak, and, and go about your business. I mean that's really what you're supposed to be doing, and therefore you can have your own life after that where you can be social on a more authentic and a genuine basis. Versus having this, oh, exactly. uh, having this artificial life where, you know, and I've ridiculed that for many decades in my writing about how people were, I, I felt, have a different set of standards. Like they, they would have no problem being cruel to people at work, but then they'd be lovely to people afterwards after work. I'm like, what the hell is that supposed yeah. to be all about? Well, uh, we, had, like, we had to engage in this way because of that. And now I'm like, no, e either you're going to set your values on who you are at work and, and who you are otherwise. Otherwise, you have to wonder why people have so much depression and had so much nervous breakdowns and so much midlife crisis because in the end, they were one set of person for a husband, another set of person for a father, another person for a worker, and then another yeah. person for a friend. They were like four and five different personalities. How the hell is that supposed to have been any healthy? Yeah, and... One of the things that, like, specifically working retail during the, like, the pre-vaccines, um, kind of, like, when we didn't really know what was going to, going to happen with COVID, um, people were terrible. Like, we, so the bookstore where I worked, what we decided to do was we set up a little table at the front door. Um, and we called it the bouncer station, like you, like at a club, because we had capacity limits at the time for businesses where they could only let 50 people in. Um, so someone would sit there with an iPad and keep track of how many customers were in the store and in the little cafe that was attached to, attached to the store. And then they would also, um, let me see if I can, I can still do it. Okay, one second. Hi, welcome in. Um, if you could just please keep your mask on over your mouth and nose at all times while you're shopping, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you pick up a book and you flip through it a little bit and you decide it's not for you, please put it on one of our designated sanitizing tables. Like, we just had to say that to every person that walked in. Oh, boy. Um, because we, 
I wasn't sure that I, I wasn't sure that COVID could be with paper or not. I guess I I wasn't sure about that. We had no idea. Oh, so for okay. like wow. five months, oh, boy. we had this UV wand that we would wave over all of the books, hoping to zap the germs. <laughs> oh Lord. Well, I I guess we, we got like, no choice now. It's like we genuinely didn't know at the time, and we were so freaked out because like a like we didn't have access to vaccines yet so we were all trying to not get sick and just like so freaked out and stressed and then you had to do that on top of everything else so you had to like work the register shelve all the books but then you would have to go circle around and you'd see these giant piles of books that you would have to take them to the front and zap them with the wand but then there would be a line at the register and then if you were working a bouncer station, there would be like a wily person who didn't want to wear their mask and didn't think that they sh- they should have to and shopped at the store for 20 years. But they're not going to shop anymore if we decide to be like such communists about it. And this is America, <laughs> freedom. And like it was the most emotionally exhausting job that I've ever had. Like I love um I, the bookstore where I worked was great and I love everyone who I worked with. That is the only way that I got through it. But the customers, like, I cannot imagine being that terrible to a stranger. Like, we got screamed at. Like, our, my, like, our managers got called Nazis. Like, my friend who was a manager, like, this lady, kept not wearing her mask but coming on inside anyway and then she would she was like getting up really really close like in my friend's face and just like would not stop getting closer and closer and closer and like we thought that my friend was gonna have to like take her out to the parking lot like it was ridiculous it was absolutely just like unhinged so yeah i that kind of burnt me out on customer service oh yeah it was so wild and like i at the end of it i was like really struggling to have sympathy for people who could just like look at look at a stranger who was trying to ostensibly keep them safe while maintaining um a little bit of normal normalcy you know everyone loves to like go hang out in a bookstore for a bit but like also just yell at them and say hey if you're not like i'm not going to do this one specific thing for you like you're the worst like why are you doing this like and then just like cough on you and walk away <laughs> like it was so visceral so yeah now i feel like even two years later um there are parts of me that are still kind of like relaxing back from that just because it was day in and day out too like that was just our reality and we had no idea that people could suck so bad you know it's kind of like what you said about the different sides of people um I think a lot of people pre-pandemic were very used to the world working for them on a very basic level like they didn't have to adapt to go from point a to point b you know they didn't have to do anything different so when 
something was introduced, they freaked out and they didn't know how to handle it. So they took it out on whoever was around at the moment. And most of the time at the bookstore, it was just like the 20 year old working the bouncer station. Like a lot of my coworkers were much younger than me. Um, Cause like we would, a lot of college kids um, will get a job at that store just as kind of like a after school job because the schedule is flexible enough and they were like 1920 being screamed at and I was like I'm at the time I was like I'm 25 and I used to work doors at punk shows like I can handle if like some dude wants to get like a little wily with me but like that wasn't the case for everyone and we but we were all just like so tired <laughs> like yeah, so now that I'm in my, like, walking around the park in the middle of the day kind of era and just kind of, like, writing my little romance novels, my brain feels so much better. Um, I truly think I am a much better friend and roommate and just human being now that I have kind of this ability to reserve my social battery more and be a little bit more introverted for my work. And I also really just like the activity of writing even if it is something that's not directly connected to me um I like actually sitting down and looking at my notes and trying to make sense of something or looking at an outline um like the muscle memory of writing is very soothing to me and I I tell my clients all the time that writing is a muscle like it's something that you have to practice and you have to build stamina for so like if you want to write a novel, you got to start sitting down and seeing if you can write 500 words a day, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree because like anything else, it, it normally doesn't only take practice. It, it, it takes a, a certain type of, uh, I think, mental discipline because, you know, on the course of a day, you might want to do something else or you might even emotionally feel something else. But in order to be able to to meet a deadline or in order to be able to at least uh, simply, you know, just preserve your writing, you, you have to be able to put down something each day. I mean, and that really does take a type of discipline that that's that's really different than than, than most uh, pastimes. Yeah, and that's another thing that I, I think grad school really helped me with was um, it, especially being stuck at both my my own apartment and then I also, I lived with my parents for like a little bit of quarantine um, when I initially started grad school. It really made me um, like learn how to carve out my own writing time, even if I was tired from work, like because I had a deadline, like it made me sort of develop that discipline to be able to produce work even though maybe my that's not what my mind and body want at the time um and I I don't know if you feel about this um with like procrastination but I always feel much better once I just sit down and do it you know like if I have a big deadline I would, at this point in my life, I would much rather just sit down and write for like a solid three hours and chip away at it than like stress about it. So I, I think it's a lot, yeah. a, a lot of, of 
of ritual involved mm-hmm. in, in what, yes. what you creatively do because I, on the other hand, cannot just sit down and write unless I already have either an outline or some kind of a plan or, or some kind of a notion to be able to even do that. Otherwise, I'm just not somebody that they can just write blank screen and somehow I'm going to work it out in three hours. It, it will not work at all. So uh, I often have to, I wouldn't say procrastinate, but I would have to deliberate more. Mm-hmm. So many a times um, people would be interested or fascinated that, you know, I could write a couple of hours and a, a couple of articles in a couple of days not realizing that, you know, it took a couple of weeks of mulling through all that for no one to be able to get to do that, you know, where after a couple of drafts, I'm ready to go. But that took a while to, to happen because that's just the way my process is. Not everybody else is different. I mean, some people have the Stephen King method where, you know, whether they're, they're putting out 1,500 words a day, and whether it's good or not, they, they figure they're going to break through eventually and edit it and go from there. And, and, and to me, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's just that that's isn't my way of, of doing it. Oh, for sure. And it's interesting that you mentioned um, ritual in relation to writing, because that's actually something we talked about quite a bit at Naropa was the idea of like setting the space for your writing, just like how you would set the space for like a meditation or any other sort of practice. Um, and there is actually a whole field of poetry called ritual poetics of these writers who have these, in the most literal sense of the word, rituals or these tasks that they do in order to inspire their poetry. Like, I know um, there's this poet that I really love. Their name is C.A. Conrad, and their entire poetry practice is ritual poetics. So they will do things like they will only wear one color and eat one color food for a day and then or a week and then they'll write about it or they will like travel to different places and visit these like homes of old writers like they did this ritual where they went to Emily Dickinson's house and they grabbed like a handful of soil from her garden and like brought it back with them on the plane to Philadelphia where they were living at the time and then they wrote a poem about that process Um, So it's super interesting just to hear as a writer about everyone's little quirks that they do in order to get into a creative mind space. I have only just started doing outlines um, for my fiction because I mostly when I write fiction is ghostwriting. Um, For poetry, it usually starts in I am a very obsessive journaler. I love notebooks and stationery. Um, so I, I try to journal every day. And then I have a little hunk of my journal that is just for like poem ideas where I'll write down a line or two. And then once I've kind of gathered enough, I will go into a Word document and type it all out and then just kind of move stuff around. And it's like a puzzle. I just got to move it around until it fits. Um, but with it, with fiction, I've in um, longer sort of creative nonfiction essays, I've found that I do really like the structure that an outline provides. Whereas um, before I started doing it, I think I I kind of thought that it was gonna like um, hinder my creativity somehow instead of give it a container to exist in. 
Yeah, I, I, I hear that. I hear that a lot. I, I did a show uh, on, on rituals uh, on the podcast uh, some years back. And, uh, oh, that's cool. I just I defined it as two things. Either, and in your particular case especially, uh, the, the ritual has to do with more of shaking the tree. So it's sort of like mm-hmm. rustle themselves out of, you know, whatever, you know, scenery life or whatever thought you have to, to, to something else that could be creative. And then the other the other aspect of it is for me more and maybe some people as well. It to me, it's more of a security thing. I don't um, I don't feel the best on a blank piece of paper or a blank screen uh, at, at all. I, I feel I feel it's insecure and I don't feel ready. So uh, I mm-hmm. have to have a note, whether it's a piece of paper or, you know, a, a note from a, a, an iPhone or something like that, or possibly an idea, an outline or something, some quote, anything, because that's the only way that I could hang my hat on something and, and feel secure. And then other people have other rituals that could go beyond that. Uh, they, maybe they only want certain pens or they want a certain computer or they only want to write certain times of the day or you know, uh, I had a girl one time, she said that the only way she could write, uh, I don't know how, but she said she had to write her a certain way in a house dress. And even if she went on vacation, she would pack that house dress because that's what she wrote in. So um, I have heard of that yeah. before, actually. And, and it's, a secure, um, it's a security thing. It's not really that weird. Yeah. I don't really think it's that eccentric weird because in the end, you know, everything that I feel is necessary, whether it's athletics or professionalism or whatever, has to do with a, a kind of a preparation before you begin, uh, whether it's a lawyer in a trial or, you know, a, a, a driller on a construction site or, you know, anything else. There is a certain preparation. So why shouldn't writing be a certain preparation as well? And if it's a ritual to get to that, then I don't really think it's a, it's a problem. But I find that more times than not, it sets the person's mind at ease so that they can pretend the, the creative process. Because if they have to grapple with, you know, the, the crap of the day, you know, in order to write, or, 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 or their own emotions or whatever, or the death of a loved one or something, you know, if they don't have any kind of a ritual or structure, that makes it much more difficult because... There's too many things that are swirling around and too many distractions. And many times, uh, the only way to get to a creative sense is, is to have a kind of a clean slate for a little while. Yeah, for sure. And it's so cool to see everyone's different little tips and tricks. Like, I have heard of the thing where you're supposed to, like, um, I know some people who, when they edit, they'll, like, dress up, like, really fancy like, they'll put, like, a dress shirt on just to be, like, their most professional self while they're doing this. Or, like, I have started, um, when I work on my own fiction, I've started writing, um, lighting this little, like, creativity candle that I got at this little, like, witchy shop. It has, like, citrine in it. Like, the crystals are actually in the wax. And that's supposed to, like, spark creativity somehow. Um and it smells really good too. So now I have that like sense memory associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's so cool to watch everyone navigate this. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, to me part and parcel of the, of the creative process. Now, 
don't we don't necessarily have to have uh, for the next 50 60 years this same ritual i'm not saying that it's oh, exactly. it's required to 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 change or not change but many a time uh we go through our creative lives in a kind of evolutionary process i remember writing on uh napkins and and uh, little pieces of paper you know and then i do the iphone and then you know, in some cases, I would I would type stuff and I would not write it. Other times, I would write it and then, you know, go to the word process. So it's been so many different rituals over the over the decades. But the key thing is is to mention. I feel that you have to tailor it to whatever your particular circumstances is. I, I remember when I was um, the early years of being a father, um, I couldn't write the same as I did before I was a father. Because I'm dealing with uh, sleep preparation, and I'm dealing with uh, grumpy wives, and 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 and, gr- yeah. and grumpy babies, <laughs> you know, and uh, and all of that. So uh, I had to uh, prepare more. I had to uh, do what's necessary for the the sanctity of the time I had, because who knows when someone's going to yell and scream about something, you know, and how yeah, and how exactly. and how stressful that was. But there's no way that you could prepare the new life with the old ritual sometimes you have to have a new one to to fit that yeah that's a really i'm actually jotting that down that's a really good that's a good line well it just it just it just makes sense because for me like i said everybody has a different thing um it's to me it's never been about shaking the trees or kicking out the bushes or whatever the hell to me it's always been about security uh, until i could feel you know calm enough or secure enough or you know just with a notion in my head versus spending a couple hours doing nothing you know that then i'm all right with it i don't even care if i spend a couple hours writing and a lot of it doesn't come to to play it doesn't really come out to be anything decent as long as i'm in the act of doing it i'm okay with it it's just when you're not doing anything, you've written like three sentences or something. It's ridiculous. So I, I find that it, to me, it's essential to be able to do that. And over the years, I've, I've found that I have have my own internal clock. So when I feel that I'm able to write enough notes or, or deliberate enough or just mentally have a picture about what I want to do, then I feel it's okay on the timing to be able to you know, to create something or to make an attempt at a, at a draft. And to me, that's how it works. This way, it might seem prolific just because of what I'm doing. But, you know, I, if you would count the real time, it, it might not be so prolific. But nevertheless, it's how I, in my particular case anyway, how I become more uh, creative in tune with uh, with my person and my ideas and all of that. Uh, rather than just simply doing it in some kind of arbitrary way. Uh, I, I really don't know if Stephen King truly thought there's 1,500 words and type away and whatever the hell until you figure it out, or if he was just spouting that off because he had to write a book on writing and that's what he did. I really don't know. But what I do know is that that, that practice is simply not really feasible for most people who are creative. It's simply, yeah. it's simply not. It's just... A gigantic waste of time if you were to write um, let's say uh, 10,000 words in a week 
and, and like five of them are good and the rest of them are crap. I, I don't know what the hell's the point of any of that. You're not, no, exactly. It's, like it's, if I'm going to write ten thousand words, yeah, it's a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a client who I work as a writing coach and research assistant for, um, and I've been working with her since December. And one of the things that we do is that we talk about how she can sort of set herself up for writing because at first um she was like her short story had to be like 5,000 words or something and she was like I, I don't know how I'm supposed to like cut it down to this much so we had our first big like editing session and then um with rewrites like I would give her edits and then she would incorporate them and she's gotten so much faster between December and now because like she's kind of getting into her groove like she has her like special chair where she sits and writes like she has her list of like prompts that she uses like yeah it's just all these little tips and kind of tricks that you can use to set yourself up to actually be generative in a way that's not just like stream of consciousness which I am also a huge fan of a good just like brain dump like jot down some bullet points of what you want out of a piece you know um but like yeah you have to figure out how to sort of interact with writing as a creative force and like an embody experience and how your body will feel while you're working um yeah well, many, many of the things that I tried to leave with a writer, whether it's on the show or, you know, in my uh, my uh, literary journal aerial chart, is that too often writers seek to connect to other people in their writing, and, and many times they forget to connect to themselves. And because of that, you know, it, it, it tends to not always be authentic. Or it tends to be, in many ways, almost like, you know, poeticalness, but not really poetry. You know, it, it's almost yeah. like, uh, you know, you could see the acting in the actor. So what the hell's the point? It's like, I don't, I don't get that. Because then it's not really in character if you're just like going through the motions. So we have to remember have created people that we, we have to satisfy, I feel anyway, um, the inner voice, so to speak, first before we do anything else. Because if we don't, you know, we don't really, uh, I feel, relay uh, our deepest thoughts. And in many ways, it betrays, you know, who we are. Because anybody could write, you know, a two-page commercial. It's not anything of the soul. So yeah. if you're not going to connect to your soul, you're not going to connect to your heart or your emotions about anything, then, you know, you, you might be better off as the mouthwash person or something on a commercial because uh, that's not really that important then because it's, it's just about selling something versus telling something, you know? Yeah, exactly. And my thing with... Um, kind of going back to what you were saying about being like deliberately vague. I see that in poetry a lot where it's like people are trying to, 
they're trying so hard to be universal so they can be lauded that they forget to make a poem that's actually unique to themselves and their experience. Um, like I always tell people when they ask like, okay, like, wait, how do you write a poem? I always tell them to try and ground the reader in a specific space and time and kind of use as many sensory details as possible. Like it might not be as um, universal as like a Rupi Kaur poem, but it'll still be unique. And I think sometimes when people forget that they have their own unique percept, like perspective in favor of trying to be commercially successful, that's kind of like that's I never want to call a poem bad, but that's not a great way to pro approach poetry. I don't believe so either, and I really think that too often our um, politics uh, pollute our creativity because in many ways this concept of universality has more to do with, you know, believing that we all have something in common, which we do, but yeah. also as a creative person, we're supposed to be able to leverage our own uniqueness our family, our background, or possibly even our, our, our religion, our animals, our, our, our thoughts and philosophies, so that we can also have a voice that connects to that person as well. And when we don't do that, I, I really feel that in the end, uh, we evade responsibility. And to me, it's always been not just a pet peeve, but a serious issue about, you know, taking responsibility for your writing versus just, you know, being so damn vague that what would be the point then? Yeah, exactly. Like, I am fully aware that my poetry is not for everyone, and I am okay with that because, like, I don't want my poetry to be on a greeting card, you know? Like, I love the audience that I've cultivated, and I love the people who are oftentimes artists that I also respect who have come to respect my writing. Like, to me, that's the biggest compliment. Um, like, one of my favorite writers of all time bought my poetry book the other day, and I, like, saw the notification or whatever, and I almost dropped my phone. Because, like, that's, like, um, her name's Emily Austin, and she wrote this book called Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead, um, which is about a lesbian who gets a job on accident at a Catholic church and has to figure out how to deal with that and also deal with her mounting anxieties. Um, it's If you grew up Catholic, you should definitely read it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she's a, she's a brilliant writer and she bought my book and she was like, I'm excited to read this. Like, I feel like this book was made for me. And I was like, wait, what the hell? Like, <laughs> I told you I wouldn't swear, but like, I was floored, you know? <laughs> Like, that's why I'm a writer. It's, it's not so, like, every person in the planet can like me. It's so the people whose perspectives that I find interesting. It's I, Art's a conversation, and I just, I want to contribute to it, you know? Like, I don't need to be on top of the New York Times bestseller list. I, like, I truly when it comes to being successful as a writer, I rarely think of commercial success. 
Well, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense because in the end, um, it, it requires, to me, I feel anyway, you know, a, a subjugation of your um, your personality, possibly even your, your thoughts and, and your beliefs so that you could just swim with everybody else. And, and, and yeah. in the end, to me, that's not art. I'm not saying that art has to be revolting or has to be uh, confusing or even has to be revolutionary. But what I am saying is, is that art has to be unique to the person involved in creating it. And, and if it's not, it's it's really no different than, you know, the Xerox machine, you know, just putting off that flyer, you know, 10,000 times. It's not make a difference. It's just 10,000 flyers, the same thing. And this is the reason why many people who possibly uh, take on writing for a while do not really stick with it in the end because, you know, they have, um, I, I guess you could say, a, a laboratory model of what success is supposed to be, whether it's a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. And if it's not going to yeah. be, if it's not going to be that, then, you know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to fold to something else. Which probably isn't a bad thing because, you know, we don't really need any more people, you know, faking it. But uh, at the same point, I, w- I would dissuade them in the in the, in the beginning uh, on any of the goals that they want. If they're going to have a goal, if they're going to, other than, yeah. you know, just being uh, authentic yourself, it, it's, it's not going to work out because it, it can't be um, paint by numbers and it can't be commercial and, and it really... Really can't be uh, any, any any kind of I feel uh, type of conformity out there. It has to be something that's uniquely um, suited to yourself because that's really supposed to be your voice. And you got a lot of writers out there, or a lot of artists in particular, that you know they haven't really figured out their voice. And, and until they do, they're not really going to come to their best work. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that I have sort of been figuring out on a very serious level for the past couple of years. Um, I think grad school definitely kind of afforded me the time to sit down and think about what I want to produce. And even with ghostwriting, it's this really weird double entendre of like this this conversation that I have to um, have with myself now about what I want to be attached to my name you know um, but I also I think ghostwriting kind of gets a bad rap as well um, because people always think that it's like celebrity memoirs where as a lot of a lot of the time it's significantly more collaborative than you would expect like I most of my clients I do sit down with with them like a couple times a week just to kind of talk about like where the story is going what we want the characters to be like what we want the tropes to be incorporated like stuff like that where it really kind of it feels like a television writer's room where it's two people working to make art together rather than okay I'm gonna slam out 50,000 words pass it on to you and then that's it um and I think like at the end of the day a lot of times writing is especially in a professional setting a skill that not necessarily everyone has and it 
I'm really grateful in my life right now to be able to like offer that skill to people who like have all these cool ideas and want to get them down on paper but don't necessarily have the stamina to write like 10,000 words in a week. And and I and I agree. I, I think where it concerns uh, some ghostwriting, sometimes uh, people believe it's the stereotype that you know it's just a mercenary type of thing and you're a prisoner to it and blah blah blah. But in yeah. in many ways, the, the ghostwriter could feel liberated because they might feel that the work they do, particularly for for pay has merit but they might not want to have their name attached to it because they might not want to really be a part of that type of genre they might want to do something that's else that's exactly yeah it. And, 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 yes. and I, I tell you I, I i talked to my mom recently and uh, she's like uh, uh this romance novel this that and whatever i'm like mom it's like nine out of ten of these books are ghost written they're not even any real people okay I, I go. Yeah. That's that's what they are, and and they do that because, you know, they uh, they they sell well. They uh, they tend to have a, a type of a, you know, um, formula to them, so to speak, and um, they fulfill a need. But the person that does this might not not want to really associate themselves in the in the same way. They might want to do other things, and that would you know be a problem if you do romance novels and you do well, and then. Suddenly, the publisher doesn't want to do anything but that. So sometimes they don't have a choice yeah. but to be anonymous. So it doesn't necessarily mean a, a, a negative thing at all. Exactly. Like, at this point in my life, it's definitely how I pay the bulk of my bills, which is really cool. But it's not necessarily, like, the thing that I would want associated with my name to be, like, these billionaire bad boy romance novels, you know? Like, they're fun to write, and I'm helping someone with their own like writing dreams which also feels really good and at the end of the day it's almost more liberating to be able to just like go ahead write for the sake of it do some edits send it to someone else and know that i won't have to be the person that deals with like promotion or any of the like laundry lists of tasks that are associated with writing yes no, no doubt so it, it, it does open up an area that um didn't really uh, present itself in the past because more people have done this sort of thing now, can do it in you know the secrecy of their home and you know anonymous on the internet and all of that and 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 still uh, you know deriving you know income from it. So I think it's wonderful. Uh, in many instances, although you'd be surprised on how many people, um, even famous writers, you know had some elements of that. I mean, Ernest Hemingway was a, oh, they do, a, huge, for sure. a huge example of yes. somebody that was developing and edited to death to where half the times, if he wasn't drunk on his on his typewriter, he'd halfway fill out a story, a, a, a chapter, and fill out the rest. I mean, so it's not an unusual thing that, to have happened that, you know, you don't do the same thing any longer, but, you know, 50, 100 years ago, you know, you'd have a team of editors out there and publishers because the name was the brand and they did whatever they can. And you'd be surprised 100% of the time that that work wasn't all of that author. Yeah, and I know it also happens a lot in, like, mystery novels as well. Like, um, God, I'm trying to remember. 
like James Patterson and like those kinds of like I don't know how to describe the genre except for like red cover black text like yeah picture of a spy on the front like those are rarely written by one person um which is so interesting it's the mechanics of writing as an industry have been so fascinating to me well yeah. i really i really do uh, appreciate you being on the show um i i yeah thank you so much i had i had found um I, I talked to a couple of uh, of writers. Uh, one writer was uh, was uh, was gay, and the other one was black. And they had presented because I do a little round town table now and then, not not for the public, just on the, on a private basis. But you know, since I'm not revealing any names, I always kind of give a little clue to what's going on here. And both of them had presented to me that they had thought that it could be confusing sometimes on. I feel the uh, the definition of what they're supposed to do. And I always told them, I said, I don't have to be gay or black to understand that you don't have to be your group identity and you don't have to even be your sexuality to, to be a writer or to even have a theme. I mean, it, it's not necessary. So if you want to find a confusing way of, of doing this you can but i don't think it's a good idea uh, particularly a, a person is saying uh, mark am i am i supposed to be a black writer or should i be a writer that happens to be black i go who the hell cares in, in the 21st century we're sending spaceships to the other galaxies and you're worrying about being one thing or the other be what you want to be you might want to be a black writer on wednesday and then next month you're going to do a writer that's black and then and then on top of that you might want to do Something about the tropical rainforests in, in, in a new age, you know, uh, formula on, on how to create vitamins or something. Who says you're yeah. supposed to be anything other than what you want it to be? And I, I definitely had found the same thing with, uh, with, with gay writers is that, you know, they might have certain things that have a certain audience involved. And, and other times it, it might, might just be about you know, being, being, uh, being human or, or, or being a, yeah. a woman or a man or just being a, a writer and, and thinking about stuff. But they don't really have to have the same confines any longer. I, I really don't, exactly. I don't really believe that they, they have to. And I, I know if I was black, black or gay, and to me it's not hard to figure out, I, I would still want to do what I wanted to do and I really wouldn't care one way or the other. I just don't think it's, it's that as important as it's still taken into the world and all the world travel I've done and, you know, all of that to, to somehow now be confined to being the Italian kid from New Jersey. I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't necessarily um, kind of rally against when my work is classified as queer poetry, but I also like, I know that you don't have to be a queer person to enjoy it, you know? Like, I know a couple people who are kind of, like, apprehensive of having their work labeled as such. For me, the label doesn't bother me as much. Um, if you like my work and enjoy it, heck yeah, that's awesome. But, yeah, I think that identity can play a really powerful work in one's writing, especially when it's an underrepresented community. Um, but it doesn't 
like it's up to the discretion of the individual. I would never want someone to have to feel like they have to market themselves in a particular way in order to be heard, you know? Yeah, there really has to be, I feel, the creative freedom of the person involved, yeah. and they really can't pander one way or another to a group because I don't really think that in the end that they're supposed to have some kind of group responsibility. I mean, what's about the individual and 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 the in the voice and, and the person that, that's involved in the creation because I can tell you right now the the group isn't isn't involved in the writing room when you're you're putting that together you are yeah. you know and uh, so I I'm not suggesting that you know you're supposed to disrespect the group but what I am suggesting is that you should never disrespect yourself yeah exactly and yeah I think. A lot of times people will try to speak for, be a member of a community and still, and also attempt to speak, to speak for the entirety of it. Um, and that's just like way too much pressure to put on one person, you know? Like I literally, I am but a single, I am one parentheses, one um, queer Guido, you know? I don't speak for every queer Italian person or queer Sicilian person. Um, and this is, just my work is my work and if you like it awesome but also if it's not your um particular cup of tea when it comes to poetry like I know my poetry can be wordy I know sometimes people aren't a huge fan of even poetry that doesn't rhyme or if a poem incorporates a slant rhyme scheme they think it should just um incorporate a traditional rhyme scheme but like yeah that's the beauty of art is that you can it's it's up to the individual like yeah i don't know no i i definitely think that 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 it is uh because in the end um it's not like being a a lawyer or a doctor it's it's about i feel being very personal about the work that you're doing to me, art is very personal. It's not professional in the, in the same sense at all, you know. And because of that, you're taking some bits of your life, maybe some bits of your your sadness or or your um, even your day, and, and trying to transfix it in a way that makes sense to you, that yeah, you can connect with somebody as well because possibly they felt the same way about something yeah connection through art is so incredibly powerful and like every time that someone comes up to me after um a reading and says hey something happened to me too but no one's ever talked about it like that or like i have a poem about being a guido and wanting to be um, wanting to have like a Tony Soprano summer like and it's a it's a funny it's one of my more comedic poems um, <laughs> but someone came up to me after a reading and they were like I think we had the same like the same thing happened to me when I was a kid like I always used to want to just like hang out with my uncles and like eat deli meat and like that is also one of my versions of gender euphoria and it was such a rad conversation 
where it was like, this was just something that was like hanging out in my brain for like a solid six months. I never thought it would resonate with anyone. And then here's this total stranger like coming up to me and smiling and be like, being like, oh my God, the exact same thing happened to me when I was a kid. Like, that's so cool. I, I, and I, I completely agree. I think that uh, we have to make sure that we don't put ourselves in the corner and that we don't self-censor ourselves. And then more importantly, you know, that people don't do the same because yeah. a, a perfect example is this show here. Um, I uh, had to present to the network and do a Zoom meeting and I had eight shows in the can so, to make sure that I was ready for all for them to see and um, listen and listen in this particular case and, and all they could say was is that you know I'm an Italian guy and I'm really not supposed to talk about literary stuff you know yeah. I'm supposed to talk about alcohol and and uh, sports and, and, and killing people you know and uh, oh, exactly. yeah and I'm like uh, well I don't know how racist you think that you can become here because I don't know this open season for Italian people or something but I go, I cannot believe that you would have taken this task with anyone else, black, Jewish, or whatever, uh, but now this is okay with me. I go, how about you just let the show go, and you can see it. I mean, I already knew that on the average, a podcast don't last any more than eight shows, normally, and that's it. If it does well, oh really? Yeah, that's, that's the average. You know, So I gave them the eight shows, and five years later good to go you know that's that's awesome and also yeah there are several um okay italian writers dante um elena ferrante john fonte like yeah i i told him left and right in, in the nicest way I possibly can i go but you know um when most of you folks are in the caves like uh, you know having um sex with your farm animals uh rome w was grueling the galaxy okay so uh, we've had a long history of, of art and, and literature and uh just because i'm from new jersey and i speak a little like tony soprano does not mean that i'm interested in in violence and nonsense i, I can be who i want to be that's the whole point of no, of america and it's the whole point of of art you know and um Hell, if anything, uh, The Sopranos was was created by a you know Italian writer. You know, that wanted to speak it's, about the Sopranos some, is yeah. brilliant. Yeah, speak I, about things of the day in in a mob kind of way, but he kind of crossed like a, a lot of things: Columbus, depression, therapy, all kinds of different things that you know we're not been able to talk about as, as easily in, in those kind of shows. And that's how he worked on it. Same thing with The Godfather. Many things he talked about that. Uh, about the American dream, or even about the Italian experience, weddings and blessings and funerals and baptisms and all that, all, all of that. It's not necessarily just about gangster stuff. Exactly. And I think one of the things that The Sopranos did really well was talk about sort of the implications of toxic masculinity and that how that impacts mental health. Because um, you think of Tony Soprano as like, this big beefy guy right like he doesn't need to go to therapy but then he's having these panic attacks that are completely debilitating you know yeah no 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 doubt so, no doubt about it uh, I, i've never been much of the whole um label of the toxic masculinity thing i never felt anything like that i always just felt that um 
people, whether it's in that particular job field, so to speak, or, or anything else, um, if they don't spend time um, getting in touch with themselves, so to speak, it, it yeah. becomes repressed, and, and that becomes in its own right uh, a type of depression, and then, you know, you could lead to alcoholism and other things, or even suicide, or you could just lead to a very angry person, and I don't necessarily mean, uh, think that that has to be toxic or masculine because quite frankly you know, women can internalize things in their own ways and become that as well so um it really has to do with the mechanism of of, of just not being free with yourself and, and 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 caging up and containing too many things until you know they're exploding yeah for sure and i think that was also um I'll have to send you, there's the link to this book. It's called, the. I, I found this book last summer at a used bookstore when I was um, finishing up my MFA thesis, which is a novel in verse that's a queer retelling of Jersey Shore. Um, and it's The Philosophy of the Sopranos. I'll have to send you the link. It's super interesting because it's all of these different um, philosophical theories that are applied to the lens of different episodes um and they're short essays too they're like five pages each but yeah i think um when people engage in other works of art sort of throughout their own art or through these different philosophical lenses like you get so many interesting conversations which is why um i think that it's really cool when people engage with pop culture in their poetry because it just kind of expands that conversation and brings something that you wouldn't necessarily think of as a work of art into an artistic space. Uh, I definitely uh, prefer that to be the, the, the final word on uh, something that's been very positive on the show is to really yeah. have an understanding of, of the artist as, as an individual as well. And, and, and to, to, to me, to celebrate that, which has really been a, a great time to be able to do that, especially with, with, with you. And I really do uh, appreciate you. all that, that you're, you're involved with over here. And hopefully we can get to speak again, you know, in the, in, you. In the, in the near future, especially if we got some new book or something out. All right, folks. I will let you know for sure. And I'll send you um, the link to my poetry book if you want to like put it in the show notes or anything sure. or if you want to check it out yourself sounds good i really um, appreciate it that definitely definitely yeah. want to do that all right folks that's rosie ocola i really appreciate it it's a it's a uh, always a high time to have a, a, a nice uh, um italian girl <laughs> i don't get yeah <laughs> uh, i don't get to do them as many as as, as italian guys so that, that was a wonderful thing and, and of course uh, always a, a a writer i mean I still look forward to um, doing uh, some interview shows on artistic people that uh, do things like dance or, or theater or something like that, but I don't get as many because many of them, many times they're just either very shy or they don't really know how to, um, I guess you could say, go through an hour of you know, dance. But I'm still hoping one day that I can uh, get something like that going. I talk to a lot of people, believe it or not. Just doesn't always. Yeah, for sure. I just don't always get a chance to, uh, to, uh, to really wrestle them on on the show. I mean, I don't know, maybe because more writers uh, are willing to speak, or maybe just because they can speak in general, you know, versus uh, 
somebody who's a who's a dancer and but I'm still fascinated with all of that. I'm fascinated on uh, a, a ballet dancer and all of the, the the rigors they have to go through with all the health issues and and the aches and the pains and everything from diet to to breaking your foot to I mean amazing just to describe all of that would be incredible. You know, but uh, I've yet to find someone to do that yet. But I definitely hope one day that I, that I will, and I still look forward to that. I had a um, and I turned down, so she turned me down. But you know, I had a um, I wind up doing a show on a sacred artist, and um, mm-hmm. I I knew a sacred artist that on a modern way, but in an old-fashioned type of uh, traditional theme, did. Did, did the various um, paintings for churches. I mean, $200,000 things. It's no joke, you know. And uh, that's all they did. All they did. Uh, and um, I was just fascinated to understand, you know. You know, what's that about? What kind of inspiration do you get? Um, uh, do you uh, do you believe that, you know, that kind of money is, is, is well spent? Is it something that's going to encourage more of God or religion or religious thought? Uh, you know, in the, in the day and ages where churches are closing up, uh, can they afford $200,000? I mean, all these modern, interesting type of questions. But unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of those questions, they were <laughs> either offensive or, or they just didn't want to answer those. But still fascinated by all that. You know? Oh, for sure. Hopefully, I didn't even know that was still a job. Yeah, it's an incredible job too. That's person that really has a a modernistic kind of old-fashioned feeling to it all. But you know, it's 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 out there, and um, I still think it's art because it is. And I'm just wondering about how how um, how sacred is that person in terms of you know in in the spiritual side of things and and and. How you even contract that, and what's necessary, and it's just incredible. But uh, I had to do a show about that myself because, and, and give some answers uh, on theories anyway of what I could think of because I just couldn't get that kind of person. I just thought it was a really uh, interesting subject. So, you know, I definitely like to uh, to do uh, to do more of that. You know, you'd think I'd have singers on because at least they can speak. But again. Uh, yeah. I'm always amazed at how shy um, people can be uh, about that sort of thing. Even though, um, at this point, five years into the show, uh, Rosie, I have like 50, 60 interviews now. So uh, that's wild. It's yeah, and over 300 shows. So it's it's not hard to understand that I mean what I say about taking art seriously and and no gotcha moments, nothing disrespectful or ridiculous. Yeah. And so they should have no, I, I feel, trepidation about, you know, being embarrassed or, you know, being ridiculed because uh, that's not what I'm all about. And uh, But still, you, you're amazed by that. So all I can do is, uh, you know, go about it, pray on it that one day I'll get somebody, uh, you know, that could do something different. Because I, I'm as much as I'm interested in writing because I'm a writer, it doesn't mean I'm not interested in other things, but um, I'm amazed. Yeah. Uh, um, well, if if you want to interview a painter, I can give you some names for sure. I do have a couple painter friends. 
Yeah, well, we'll definitely, but, we'll definitely, yeah. we'll definitely look into that because I have no problem with that as long as they can, you know, just answer some questions about what that's about because I can guarantee you that um, whether there's a ritual or not, going about painting is far different, you know, than writing. I mean, you could write on a subway or in a pla yeah. in a plane. It's not like you you're taking a damn canvas over to the subway, you know. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's a uniquely different thing, no doubt about it. You got to have, you know, some place to do it, and and all that's involved in that. And I can just imagine, uh, you know, having to hawk it through galleries and this and that. So hopefully, something's going to happen. And just it's just a, a million questions I have. So it's, it's definitely interesting to you know to, to hear about that. So definitely like to do more of that. So. I always keep myself open mm -hmm. to that sort of thing, and you know, hopefully one day. I've had a, a few singers, I've had a few playwrights, you know, a lot of a lot of authors and, and writers, and uh, just haven't had too many more beyond that. But I'm going to continue on because I, I still think that um, art is more than just writing. I mean, uh, as yes, much for sure. Yeah, as much as I'm, I'm love it, still, I like to be able to do some other things as well. So. I definitely appreciate your time, though, Rosie. Folks, thank you very much for, for supporting the show all these years and, and uh, really uh, grown over 40 countries now, especially with Spotify and, and literally in, in countries in Africa now. I get emails on. So it's great to uh, to be able to, uh, you know, to go uh, far and wide in, in what we're doing. I mean, sure, it's going to be the English language and, you know, that's that's it for me. I can't do more than that. But uh, still, uh, a lot of people um, listen to all kinds of countries. I'm surprised at how big a following I have in France. And they're certainly not an English-speaking country. But, you know, they, they, they like writing and they like arts. And I definitely like them. So really, really appreciate it. All right, folks, uh, you have a good time and a good weekend. God bless uh, you all. And I'm definitely looking forward to you uh, again uh, onto another show. I got some more stuff in April. Uh, I want to do um, a couple of shows about uh, various famous writers. I like to do those classic shows. Um, I like to do a, a, a show on, on some of the Russian uh, greats. Uh, I'm also liking to do a, a, a show on on a playwright for a change. I've, I've done a few before, but. You know, I, I'd like to be able to do, uh, you know, Eugene O'Neill. I'd be interested in that, you know, because um, I really like how the scope of that kind of writing uh, really uh, portrays itself on stage. It's just so much different than doing a short fiction story, you know. So I, I, I like doing that as well. And, you know, occasionally I do the films and the, and the TV shows as well, and they have a real legacy to them, so... We'll be continuing on, on in April, folks. All right. Until then, God bless and take care. Rosie, really appreciate all that you've done. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.